We're going to be reading from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Um, so stand with me. You can find it in your bulletin or you can find it in uh, your pew Bibles. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it reveals who you are to us, that it it speaks to us, that it sends us out, that it comforts us. We thank you that it is true, that it is trustworthy. I pray that you would work in our hearts by the means of it, by your spirit. I pray today that you would show us who you are. Show us what it means that you are the Trinity, that you are one God and three persons. Show us what that means for our lives. We thank you, Lord, for this gift of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, more important than any other single doctrine of the Christian faith is the question, who is God? Who is God? What is he like? What is his nature? You may think of different ways that you could answer that. Today we're looking at one of the most practical passages of the New Testament, the Great Commission what we might call the mission statement of the church. And right in the middle of it is this doctrine that we might otherwise be tempted to think of as as ethereal, or uh, perhaps speculative, or as overly intellectual, something that is appropriate for theologians, for great thinkers, but maybe not for the average Christian, this doctrine that we call the Trinity. Of course, that word Trinity is not itself in the Bible, is a word that was created in the centuries after Christ's death to describe what we see in Scripture, a sort of a summary term. That God is at once one God in three persons. Not a God who is primarily single, yet who shows himself in three different disguises. You may have heard that illustration of of water, sometimes as ice, sometimes as water, sometimes as vapor. We want to say that that is not who God is. Is not who God is, but God is always one God in three persons. Neither is God primarily three beings, but who, like a 90s cartoon, join their powers and become one super God. No, God is always, I thank you that some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> God is always one God, three beings. One God, three persons, sorry. Co-equal. Co-eternal. When we ask who is God, this is what scripture tells us. God is Trinity. And the Trinity defies our attempts to fully understand. The Trinity is something that we can speak truly about. Something that we can know true things about. Something that God has graciously revealed to us. But at the heart of our faith is this thing that is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. At the heart of our faith is this incredible thing. 
this incredible mystery of the Trinity. The fact that the Trinity finds its way into this incredibly practical statement, this thing that we might refer to as the mission statement of the church, the Great Commission, tells us that the question, who is God, is not only a part of our faith, is not only a doctrine of our faith, but it is a part of our mission. We might say that it is not only important doctrinally, it is deeply, deeply important practically. And so if you are the sort of person who gets afraid when I say the word theology, know that God is not going to judge you as you learn. You do not need to be afraid as we wrestle through questions, but know that as you learn, as we study who God is, he is graciously showing his love to us in that learning. You're called to know him as he really is, and as one who loves us, he wants us to know him as he really is. And as we have come to know him as he really is, we are called to make him known, to call others to come and see. As we begin to look at today's passage, we are again reminded that each of the gospel writers highlighted different points of the story. They write in a unique way, each of them weaving together different points, different aspects to help the reader understand not only what happened, but why those events were important. Matthew, in this account, omits much of the detail that we find in the other gospel accounts. If you think particularly of John's gospel, um, he has a significant amount of material following Jesus' resurrection, of different meetings, of Jesus speaking to the disciples first here and then there, and there's a series of events, whereas Matthew seems to jump right into this one account that he seems to kind of use as just encapsulating the whole thing. He's wrapping up all of those meetings in this one account. It's like all the other meetings and the miracles that Jesus had done after his resurrection are are brought together in this one short story. That Jesus, who had so often chosen the mountain as a place of teaching and of self-revelation, chose once more to go up onto the mountain to reveal himself to his disciples. We might think of the Sermon on the Mount. We might think of the mountain on which Jesus healed the crowds right before he fed the 4,000. We might think particularly of the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples over and over had seen Jesus teaching on the mountain, had seen on the mountain a hint at the transfiguration of the coming glory, of the coming transformation, the coming glorification of their Lord. And now finally the disciples came to the mountain to see face-to-face, the risen and glorified, the resurrected Jesus. And at this moment of glorious revelation, Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, why is that important at that moment? We tend to think of the Great Commission as primarily being a command to us, and it is that. But if we think of it primarily in that way, we may tend to hear it uh, with a sense of guilt or a sense of shame. It's easy to use it that way, particularly as a preacher, to guilt the congregation into doing more, into giving more, into being more involved. And that sense of being challenged by the text may not be wrong. I could preach a sermon today and rev you all up and get you excited and get you 
feeling a little bit convicted and for about two weeks you would be changed. But if we view it primarily or only as a command, we're going to miss the point and we're going to miss the power of this text. Because if we look at this text in context, what we find is that the command, while important, is secondary. Secondary important, secondary in order. And that it only follows from what Jesus has already accomplished. It only follows from the authority that has already been given to him. The main point, apart from which this passage absolutely falls apart, is not what we have to do, but what Jesus has done and the authority that he has Therefore. See, on the one hand, we go out into the world as sojourners, as exiles. We go out as people who are in the world but not of the world, people who are otherly other. And yet we go out into this world under the auspices of this amazing statement that all power and all authority has been given to Jesus. We go out with a power. We go out knowing that every other king, every other ruler, every governor and mayor and county clerk operates under the ultimate and glorious power of the risen King Jesus. We don't always see this clearly. We don't always see all of the things that it ought to mean. What we do see often is a world that is in rebellion against God, a world that is trying its absolute best to deny the fact that Jesus has received all power and all authority, a, a world that is not yet fully seeing the coming of the kingdom, but yet we know that we live in a world in which the kingdom, as Jesus said, has come. He says, not all authority will be, will be given to me, not some future thing, but all authority, all power has right now been given to me. And that is how we go out. If we think about this command, we go out to do the Great Commission with this power, with this authority, because Jesus has been given this authority. As Jesus said on that mountain in Galilee, his rule has begun. We've already been reading in Acts. I think it's appropriate that we read this text in the middle of that series. We've been reading in Acts what it looks like for a church, for a a redeemed people of God to act in this way. When we look at Paul and Peter standing before kings, not pridefully, not arrogantly, right? Paul calls us uh, to honor the rulers who are put above us, to be uh, respectful to them. And yet he stands before them with this incredible sense of authority saying, you cannot tell me not to proclaim this gospel that I am proclaiming because I serve a higher authority. It's like a king who comes to the, to the house of a peasant. He may come in and the peasant may say, oh, take off your shoes, and the king may obey because he's a polite king. They may say, we wash our hands before we eat, and the king may say, I will wash my hands. And yet the king knows that he is of a higher authority, that there is a higher authority at work. And so Paul goes into these places so we can go into the places of our culture knowing that while we do respect, we do honor the place that we are, we serve a king who is utterly above it. And so we can go lovingly, We can go boldly, not needing to be overly defensive because we know that we go with utter confidence in his authority, not needing to be disrespectful and not needing to be overly fearful 
not needing to be overly timid, knowing that we serve, we are identified with the one who has all authority, all power. Now, it's important to notice that Jesus does not say, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine, although that is true. But he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does it mean that all authority has been given to Jesus? First of all, who gave Jesus this authority? We read in 1 Corinthians 15, he, that is Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. The Father has given to Jesus this authority. If the Father has commissioned Jesus to his task, if he has given him authority to rule, that means that Jesus' mission is also his Father's mission. That means that what we receive in the Great Commission comes not only from Jesus, but from the Father, comes from the Trinity. That as we take God as Trinity to the nations, so we are sent out by God as Trinity. The love that Jesus shows us is the same love that his Father feels for us, and Jesus' love expresses that love. We read later on in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that the purpose of God's dealing with us through Jesus is not to put Jesus between us and himself, but rather it is that Jesus might go to us and deliver us back to God the Father. Not to create an intermediary so that God the Father will not need to be near us, but rather a person to come and to redeem us so that we might be gathered back in, that we might be one with God, not identical with God, but that we might be unified to God in the person of Jesus. This is the pattern of God's dealings with his people, of the Trinity's dealings with his people. The same love being expressed by all three persons of the Trinity, the same mission. The Father sent his Son out of his love to redeem his people and to gather them to himself. The Father and the Son together send the Spirit to apply Christ to our hearts, to bring us to faith, to build us up in Christ. We are gathered in by the Trinity. And this leads us to the, to the Great Commission. The Trinity reaches out to gather us in. So the Great Commission is not about us asking, have I done enough? It's not about guilting ourselves. It is not about working ourselves up, energizing ourselves to greater action. I do hope that we will take this text seriously and seek to live it out. But it is not first and foremost about that. We are gathered in by God, each person of the Trinity expressing that same love. And so we, as God's redeemed people, are sent out by him to take part in that very same work of love. This is what we see in the Great Commission. It's not a king who doesn't want to get his hands dirty, and so he sends out his servants to do the unpleasant work. It's a king who has already done it. A king who has already gone out a king who has already died for us, who is calling us, therefore, to join in his work. And so it is not a belittling task, rather it is a dignifying task that he gives to us. Go 
and be involved with the work that I am doing. There are three commands within the Great Commission. First, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, reach out. Reach out to those around you. Be the hands and the feet of Christ. Bear Christ to those who don't yet know him. Bear Christ as Jesus did to your enemies, to those who it is difficult to be around, to those who do not look like you or think like you or act like you. Bear Christ to the world around you, whether you think they deserve it or not. Go to those who ought to be your enemies. Second, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here, as we have been sent by the Trinity, we are bringing people, we are baptizing people into the name of the God that we serve who is himself Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now in saying that we baptize into the name of the Trinity, we are saying at least three things. First of all, that there is a washing of sins. I, I can't speak fully to baptism right now. If you are someone who is working through those questions, come up to one of your elders, come up to me afterwards. Um, but I think we can at least get a little bit of a view of what baptism means. First, a washing of sins. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there's a sense of washing from our sins. Second, there's a sense of union, right? We are washed and we are united to Christ. Colossians 2, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Christ's death is counted our death. Christ's burial is counted our burial. Christ's resurrection is counted our resurrection. This is part of what baptism symbolizes. And finally, it symbolizes being filled with the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3, John the Baptist is speaking and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is part of the implications of our baptism. That filling with the Holy Spirit, that being baptized with the Holy Spirit, we do not believe that there is some second thing that happens in which we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, but rather that that, that is part of what it means to be baptized. So washing of sins, union with Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and what are those things pointing to? It's that being gathered into God, to his people, to being united with him as we have been reached out to, so we are gathered back into God. And finally, teaching them all that I have commanded you, the third command. Too often we judge our effectiveness in missions, our effectiveness and our honesty to the Great Commission by saying, how many conversions have we seen? It's not a bad thing to see conversions. We pray for conversions. We pray for people to come to faith, and yet... At the end of this, the particularly important passage is teach them all that I have commanded you. See them grow. See them become more like Jesus. See them 
come to know their faith, see them come to live out their faith. As we have been called, brought into Christ to look like Christ, so help others to do the same. God is inviting us, again, to do those things that he does by his power. When I was a kid, uh, my brother and I, this is going to seem like a bit of a jarring uh, jump, but my brother and I loved skateboarding. I promise it connects. And we begged my dad. My dad was a great woodworker. I mean, just really, really talented. We begged him to make us a skateboarding ramp, a half pipe. Um, I don't think I knew how much work that was. Um, you know, I was an 11-year-old. I was like, yeah, just, just go build it, and that'll be great. Um, and he said, yeah, I will do that, but you have to help. And I said, yeah, sure, that's, that sounds like fun. Um, and so he, he did it. He built this enormous half pipe in our backyard. And he invited my brother and I to do the work alongside him. Right? As if you're a parent, you've probably done something like this. We, we think of baking cookies, right? You have your kids stir. You, you have your kid get involved. Not because you, you are sitting there needing the help. Frequently it's easier if you're just like, just watch cartoons and I will do it for you. But because we involve our children, we involve you know, our young ones in the things that we do because we want to see them grow into maturity. We want them to grow into people to some degree like us, hopefully with our strengths and not with our failures. Right? As I watched my dad and helped him, quote-unquote, build that half-pipe, I saw the things that he did, the way that he approached his work with incredible diligence over this somewhat silly thing that we wanted him to do. You know, learning lessons, you know, measure twice, cut once, and you know, all of the diligence and the incredible precision that went into that, and seeing just how he approached it, and that you know, builds you into a, into a more mature person. You become like the one that you are doing the work with. And this is what God has called us to. To do the work that he is doing, that we might grow into people who are like him. As Jesus went out and loved the least of these and brought them to himself, as the Spirit filled them and and helped them to learn and helped them to grow in their faith, God sends us out to do these three things, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to teach them, to have them grow in their faith, because God has been doing that work, and he wants to involve us in it, and he wants us to become like him in it. I said earlier, this is a deeply dignifying thing that he does. Again, we can be tempted to say, God wants me to go do this thing. It's all about me. It's all about what I do. And God is saying, no, it's my authority. It's my work. But I want you to come and do it with me because I love you and I want you to grow into Christ. Finally, the very last line of Matthew's gospel consists of this beautiful promise from Jesus to his church. He says, and Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Is there a better word, you know, phrase to end a gospel with? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, my goal this morning is that each of us should grow in our faithfulness to the Great Commission. I do think that action, that intentionality of being faithful to the Great Commission is very, very important. I hope we will leave today and be more faithful to these commands than we were yesterday. I hope we will be diligent and passionate about evangelism, 
that we would be selfless in our love, that we would be careful and excited about our study of Scripture, about teaching other people Scripture, about building them up in the Word of God and in the life of the Christian. I hope we will dedicate ourselves to these things. I hope you're right now asking yourselves the question, how can I grow in faithfulness to these commands? What opportunities has God given me? What places am I not being faithful as I ought to be faithful? What ways, what emotional and you know, spiritual things am I going through that I can work through, that I can grow in to be more like Jesus in the way that I do this? How can I be more emotionally and spiritually committed to the things of God rather than the things of this world? How can I grow? How can I do this? How can I be active? I hope you will talk about these things on your way home. I hope that you will discuss as a family, as, as the people of the church. I hope we will be dedicated to these things. I hope you will take the Great Commission with complete and utter seriousness. But more even than that, I hope that the Great Commission will stir up a change in our hearts. I said earlier, we can stir ourselves up to good works. We can do that all on our own. We can make ourselves emotional. We can get ourselves just ready to do the work. We can, we can do it for a time. We can commit ourselves to sharing our faith at every opportunity. We can marshal ourselves against the sin in our life for a time on our own ability. And yet, if our hearts are changed then our actions will be changed not for a time, but permanently. We will become more like Christ, and so we will act like Christ. This is the hope, that as we see what Jesus has done for us, and we see the ways that he is gathering us in to act and to take part in what he is doing, that we will be changed people, changed in our actions, but primarily changed in our hearts, changed in our affections, amazed at this love of God that has gathered us in and called us to be like him. The Great Commission began by telling us that we don't go by our own authority, but by that of Christ, and it ends with this promise that we don't go alone. We are people who are easily fearful. That's part of what it means to be human. We are people who become afraid of the things that we have to do that will make people angry at us, that will put us in danger, And yet we know that we don't go alone. If you've ever had to, to go to a difficult, to tell someone something difficult, whatever it is, you know that going alone is the hardest thing. But we know that we never go alone. We never have to be alone. As we do this work that God is doing in the world, Jesus says, I will always be with you. There will never be a time, there will never be a moment when I leave you alone. There will never be a time when I abandon you. I am with you always to the end of the age. There will be difficult moments and Jesus will be with you. There will be joyful moments and Jesus will be with you. There will be deeply confusing and difficult moments and Jesus will be with you in those. He went before you he has been doing this work before you. He has promised that he will be with you in this work and that his love and his grace towards you will never fail. That's a good promise.